Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Jane Winter and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And today's podcast episode is supported by Beatrice. We'll be discussing some medical and dietary management today, but the podcast is not intended to be medical advice, which should be tailored to individual circumstances. The podcast is for information only, and we advise you exercise your judgment before deciding to use the information provided. And of course, professional advice should always be obtained before taking action. So today we're taking some time to talk about pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, what it is, its consequences, and clinical tools and tests dietitians should be aware of. I'm joined by Lauren Atkins, who's going to share her clinical experience to describe the impact of exocrine insufficiency on an individual's day-to-day life and, in fact, their overall quality of life and the role that pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy can play. But we'll be calling pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy PERT because it's a bit of a mouthful. Lauren is an advanced accredited practicing dietitian and co-founder and director of her business, Encore Nutrition. She has over 10 years' experience in oncology and haematology and nutrition care, having worked at Peter Mac, uh, the Ch- Royal Children's Hospital, and Epworth Hospital here in Melbourne, Victoria, as well as providing education and leadership to multiple universities and cancer organisations. She's a member of the COSA Nutrition Group Executive Committee and contributes to national cancer care research and framework. So welcome back to our DC podcast, Lauren. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thanks for having me back, Jane. So we we did speak to you last year, I think, um, and you shared a bit about your career journey and how you sort of became interested um, in this topic. But for those who haven't listened to that podcast, you should. You should go back and listen to it. But anyway, (laughs) for those who may not have, uh, can you just give us a brief summary and particularly about um, how you've gone from that oncology space into an interest in this pancreatic insufficiency space? Yeah, for sure. So as you mentioned, Jane spent have spent the majority of my career working in oncology care and have been fortunate to ex, um, to have that extended across multiple different sites, public, private um, hospitals, but also private practice. And I've always had a really strong interest in upper gastrointestinal oncology, so upper GI cancer care, and mostly due to the fact that it's um, – the impact it has on the digestive system means that nutrition is such a vital aspect of caring for these patients and small changes to nutrition intervention and empowering people with nutrition knowledge can make a really profound difference to their life, their quality of life. Pancreatic cancer is absolutely uh, no, uh, certainly fits that bill. So someone with pancreatic cancer 
can become incredibly unwell and nutrition can be a tool that really does change their life. So in the case of pancreatic cancer and pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, establishing a regimen with PERT and providing nutrition advice and education can absolutely turn their life around. And so that's a very inspiring area of dietetics to work. So I guess selfishly it's a feel-good area (laughs) as much as you would think pancreatic cancer with its really low survival rates would be um, a very difficult and sad area to work in. Absolutely it is, but our ability to make a difference to someone's life, even if it is a shorter life, is huge. Yeah, and I guess that's what I was thinking as you are saying that the first thing you think of with pancreatic cancer is poor prognosis. Mm -hmm. Um, It comes to mind. But obviously that doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow. Like there can be many months or even years that people are are managing it. And as you say, if you can improve their side effects or their Mm -hmm. nutrition-related complications, that must be just enormous for them. It is. Them them and their families, it can be the difference between, you know, travelling in the last years of life versus being bound to home attached to the toilet. Yes. Yeah, it can make a huge difference. So, Highly encourage anyone who doesn't have an opportunity to experience working in upper gastrointestinal cancers, do so. The other area that uh, element of working in this area that's so rewarding is that the multidisciplinary team is fantastic <clears throat> because nutrition is known to be so important in this area of dietetics. We're really well respected and regarded in the team, and you have the opportunity to collaborate really closely with that team, which is always really rewarding as a professional. Yeah, um, that was another thing that came to mind, but we think of multidisciplinary teams if you're working in a clinic or a hospital environment. Mm-hmm. How does that transfer to a private practice environment? You know, yeah, you actually really good your question. Own? Yeah, and it, and it doesn't translate particularly well, but um, myself and my business partner and now my team of dietitians, we've really taken... The tact, the strategy that we need to replicate that MDT care that's provided in the hospital setting and translate that to private practice because it's still essential. And so we've established um, pathways and processes whereby we have regular meetings with other allied health professionals that work in the private setting. So we've got a group called the Allied Health Oncology Group. Um, AHOG, as we nickname it, where (laughs) allied health professionals from around Australia get together on a regular basis to provide education to each other. We share cases, we do um, awareness raising, we cross-refer. So we we try to establish that MDT model. And what sort of other professions are in that? Yeah, so we've got physios, EPs, nurses, radiation oncologists, um, psychologists, occupational therapists, um, sexual health therapists, so OTs specifically with a sexual health interest, and we have um, consumer representation as well Um, and speeches too that come along. That's fantastic. So consumer, medical, nursing and allied health. Yeah, that's right. Wow, that's brilliant. So where do your most of your referrals actually come from? Mm. In this setting, so when if we're talking about pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, yeah. we get a lot of referrals from cancer organisations. So we've set up um, some no-cost-to-patient pathways um, with organisations like Pancare 
Yep. Uh, so Pancare can refer to our services. The patient doesn't pay for that care, but they get access to that uh, experienced dietetic advice that they haven't been able to access mm. elsewhere. So we get a lot of referrals from Pancare, but also from oncologists and gastroenterologists yep. um, get into nationwide. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if we move on to the, the whole area of exocrine insufficiency, for those of us who might not be familiar with it, can you just give us a really brief uh, description of, of what it is and how you recognise it uh, in a patient? For sure. Yeah, and look, as the name suggests, pancreatic exocrine insufficiency is where the pancreas doesn't produce or secrete enough pancreatic enzymes to maintain normal digestion. So this means that foods aren't broken down as they need to be for our intestine to be able to absorb them normally, to absorb the nutrients. And that can, of course, lead to malnutrition as well as uncomfortable gastrointestinal symptoms and a whole host of other issues that come along with both of those factors. And it can be associated with a range of conditions um, ranging from cystic fibrosis, where it's really commonly recognised, um, through to cancer, but also some other rarer conditions where it might be less on um, people's radar but yeah. can still present. And so if a patient presents to you with anything in terms of the, the pathology that they've been sent for, what are some of the, the red flags, the triggers that you see that would alert you to the fact that there may be an element of exocrine insufficiency? Yeah, so it's most commonly detected by the symptoms that it produces. So those of which are maldigestion, so not digesting or absorbing nutrients properly. properly. And in many cases, but not all cases, uh, that presents as steatorrhea, which is the presence of fat in the stool that leads to pale-coloured, floating and foul-smelling stools uh, that are often quite frequent. Um, because as food passes through, it's not digested and absorbed and essentially what goes in comes out. And there's often associated gastrointestinal symptoms that come along with that. So because the food isn't well digested and absorbed, you get a change in the osmotic pressure in the bowel, which can lead to um, fluid influx and diarrhoea. You can get pain, cramping, bloating, gas, um, and then associated with the malabsorption, often patients will either be losing weight or not gaining weight when we would expect them to be. And in children that can present as slow growth or inadequate weight gain, or in adults it could be that they're eating enough that they would normally predict weight gain or stability, but that's just not happening. They might be losing weight or not gaining weight as they would have predicted. So do you find that these patients, if they're having symptoms like this, which are pretty awful, mm. um, start trying to self-restrict problematic mm. foods? So common. And the, and the intuitive patients will come to us and they will already be restricting their fat because yep. they feel better when they eat lower fat products and a low intake of fat. And so, you know, uh, we might get a chance to talk about some cases, but very often they're on low-fat diets yeah. and, and managing their symptoms that way. So, I mean, you talked about malnutrition as a pretty obvious outcome of exocrine insufficiency, but are there other clinical consequences mm. uh, that we know are documented? Yes, certainly. So with 
the mal- malabsorption of fat, we often get deficiency in fat-soluble vitamins, so vitamins A, D, E, and K, but also minerals. So magnesium, calcium, zinc, and folic acid are often maldigested, malabsorbed. And so along with that comes the impact on chronic disease risk. And if you think about the importance of those nutrients, we think about bone density and it's certainly it's very common for patients with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency to present with low bone mineral density. But also with the mineral uptake, cardiovascular events can can also be elevated. So there might be risk of heart conditions and the overall malnutrition that comes from um, weight loss, protein energy malnutrition, sarcopenia. Um, so weight and muscle loss are quite common as well. And do you, um, if you expect, you know, someone that you're thinking their probably nutritional status is not great, is there any biochem you actually look for or do you generally just go with they're nutritionally depleted and we need to get them up as quickly as possible? But are there tests that you look for? Yeah, look, there are tests that you, we, we should recommend and encourage even if you are quite suspicious of and managing the PEI, the pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. <clears throat> As, as a baseline and therefore a monitoring tool for the nutritional status, we should be looking at biochemical markers. Um, so certainly a general biochemical screen is really worthwhile. Yeah. So looking at things like iron studies, folic yeah. acid, um, electrolytes. Uh, yeah. You'll look at lipoproteins, blood sugar levels, um, the inflammatory real markers. Standard yeah. kind of Yeah, blood and you can screen. also test for... Yeah. Uh, vitamins A, D, E, and K, so those fat-soluble vitamins. Uh, And in some cases, depending on where you're at in diagnosis and who's involved in that diagnostic process, you might look at um, stool testing as well to get a sense of fecal elastase and other tests that can uh, help to inform that diagnosis if there's uncertainty around it. Yeah. So you mentioned that you, you obviously see quite a number of these cases compared with what someone else might in private mm. practice. Um, can you give us some examples of, of patients that you've seen or clients that you've seen that that present yeah. with PEI that may be untreated or treated, I guess, but the, the effect it does have on their daily life? Yeah, for sure. And and I think this is really important. And whenever I do speak about um, pancreatic exocrine insufficiency, I often will talk about a case. <clears throat> Sometimes I'll actually bring a patient with me because the impact on their quality of life is so profound. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing for me to say it, it's something else to hear it from the patient directly. But I'm, I'm going to talk you through a quite a common case for me, which <clears throat> I'll use the example of Sandra, who's in her mid-50s. She's a runner, so really keen half marathon runner. And she had a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer and had a Whipple's procedure. So she had her the majority of her pancreas removed, but she was never prescribed um, PERT, and that was never discussed with her during is that her unusual. Or it not? shouldn't be, but it is but very it is common. common. Yeah. Um. So she then went on managing okay, <clears throat> pancreatic reserve can continue for at least three to six months after pancreatic surgery. 
And pancreatic exocrine insufficiency doesn't present until you reach a threshold of the enzyme not existing or not being secreted. So she was doing okay until she started chemo. So then she started chemotherapy, which was intentionally damaging the pancreatic cancer cells and, of course, also damaged her healthy cancer cell, uh, healthy pancreatic cells, and she then started to develop signs of steatorrhea, malabsorption. She was losing weight and and unable to manage her GI symptoms. So she changed the fibre in her diet. She changed some of her fluid intake. She started taking fibre supplements to try and um, bind things up, but she was not having any luck. She actually started to limit her intake of fat and found herself feeling a lot better on a low-fat diet. And when she came to me, she was still experiencing those steatorrhea symptoms and she was eating a really bland, low-fat diet. So she was having white fish, rice, vegetables, fruit, um, and still not feeling good enough. Um, She was on loperamide, codeine, other medications to help slow things down because it was assumed that chemotherapy was driving those symptoms. Um, But after meeting me, I was straight on the phone to her oncologist and we got her a script for Creon and immediately she experienced relief. And that's what she describes. She Direct quote, the relief was immediate. So she was taught how to use it and how to take it. We coached her through liberalising her diet, so reintroducing fat. She was quite nervous to do Mm, so. Understandably. Um, Yeah. So that took... um, quite a lot of support and counselling, but with her understanding and uh, knowledge of how PERT actually worked, we were certainly able to liberalise her diet. And months later, um, I I should actually say around about the same time, she actually had been found to have a fracture in her toe, so she quite literally had low bone density to a point where she was getting fractures. Um, And within months she was back running again. So she wasn't able to even walk around the block, let alone go for a run, because she had to be close to the bathroom at all times. And, yeah, back travelling, hiking, um, back to her normal life. And really, really common scenario where it's just not, not identified, not discussed as it should be. Um, a similar case in a very similar situation, a Whipple's patient who should have had this education provided. She was a teacher and she actually had to quit her job because she couldn't last the extent of a class, like a... Oh, um, just one lesson. One lesson, yeah, without having to use the toilet. Oh, so the impact on her life was significant and again with the introduction of crayon education on how to use it back in the classroom and i guess that's interesting that which i didn't know that you might actually have a period post a whipple's procedure or surgery mm. that you it doesn't actually affect you like you, i would have thought that as soon as you have surgery you're going to have impact and therefore the causal relationship would be obvious but i guess yeah. if you can go six months before it starts impacting. Um, Yeah. What about people with like um, 
chronic relapsing pancreatitis are they mm. at risk of getting it as well exercise insufficiency yeah yeah certainly chronic pancreatitis also acute pancreatitis it certainly could present um for a period of time <clears throat> and so certainly should be on the radar of anyone seeing anyone with chronic pancreatitis or even acute pancreatitis so if you have a patient presenting to you and like those two that you suspect or mm. pretty strongly suspect yes. that there's excron insufficiency going on and you want them started on PERT. You mentioned mm -hmm. that you call the doctor straight away. Is that yeah. is that your usual steps if you think this is worth a trial? Yeah, so because the impact is so often immediate and the the symptoms are so debilitating, I always encourage a phone call for that reason for patient advocation, but also advocacy, I should say, but also for the opportunity to educate the health professional um, because a letter is fine. I'll always write a letter as well. But if we can communicate with a person, person to person, have a conversation about a patient, a mutual patient that means something to both of us, that is an opportunity for education. And that's the piece that I think as dietitians we should be investing more time in. And does it come as a surprise to those doctors? Like when you call them and say this is what you're suspicious of, like is, mm. is it like they go, oh, of course I should have thought of that, or is it literally something they go, oh, yeah, that's that's an it's, idea. Like, it's so interesting you, you ask that because the reaction is often quite insignificant. So, oh, yeah, oh. sure, I write them a script. There's never any resistance. Right. Never. It's firstly, it's a very, very low risk therapy. So mm. no doctor is ever concerned about trialing it. And it's yep. often pitched, I'll often pitch it as a trial. I'm suspicious of PEI presenting with symptoms of steatorrhea. Can we do a trial of PERT? And the answer is, yeah, sure. Um, like, how do I write it up? Yeah, right. <laughs> so often it's a bit of a, unless, in, you know, unless they work in the field, a gastroenterologist would, would be yeah. certainly different. Yeah. Um, but they might not be familiar with the dosing that exists yeah. and they might not know how to write it up so that then the pharmacy dispenses it in a way that's meaningful. Yeah. And so for the patient's point of view, then what do you say to them? Say you're talking to your doctor, you're recommending this, and what are the sort of education steps you need to go through with the patient? Yes, and really important that we do. So <clears throat> one really key element is that if you do it well from the start, it's so effective. But if you don't do it right from the start, it cannot work and it feels like a failed intervention. And so that can be quite disheartening to, for a patient who you've got all this excitement, I think this is really yeah. going to work, and then it doesn't. So it's really important you educate around what PERT is, how to take it effectively to set them, set them up for a really positive experience and the best chance that it will actually work which I guess also goes along with amazing compliance. If it works, there's no way they're going to um, restrict it or play around with it um, mm. if it's working straight off. But so so what do you need to tell them about taking yeah. it? What are the sort of rules? So first up, I would explain what it is so they understand and can visualise how it works. So I'll often describe it, um, and if you go back to our last podcast on this, I'll describe how PERT works to break down a necklace yeah. into links so that we can absorb them and giving somebody a visual aid can actually be really meaningful when they're eating. 
But also understanding that that capsule of perch only lasts about 20 minutes and we need to take it at exactly the same time as your food in order for it to work on your food. And so the the messaging is first mouthful of food, first tablet of perch. That's really key. And I'll stress that as a very important part. So you don't take it before you go out for dinner. No. Because then you're waiting an hour and a half before you get your meal. And it's it's useless. useless. Yeah. May, may as well not have taken it. Likewise, yeah. if you're taking it 20 minutes after, also not effective. Yeah. So you've got a 20-minute time frame. If you're at a long lunch or having dinner and then dessert, it's quite possible that your meal will last longer than 20 minutes and therefore you'll need to take more to cover the extension of that meal. So that's really important. Uh, I'll talk about a baseline dose, so how much to start with. And, of course, being dietitians, we've most often taken a diet history, so we'll be able to understand where to start based on their food. But a, a fairly standard starting dose would be to have approximately two 35,000 international unit crayons at main meals and perhaps one at each snack and one with each protein or fat-containing fluid. We can then titrate that. So if somebody's eating a really large amount of fat or large meals versus small meals, that can be adjusted. Um, But depending on the patient's education level, ability to retain information, how stressed and anxious they are about this, I'll either give them a very set, this is what you're going to do, or some freedom to adjust. Most often I'll give them a structured plan to start with and we can adjust it down the line if we need to. So it'll often be a caveat that if this isn't working, come back to me straight away. I don't want you to sit in the discomfort. We might need to tweak something. So I guess you're getting them to understand that they can increase the dose. If they're going out for dinner, for example, and they're having something that would be much higher in fat, they can have a higher dose. But to people that aren't dieticians, they don't necessarily know how much fat is going to be in it or whether it's more fatty. And that's a whole big education piece. And so you'll understand your client a lot better as to who perhaps you can give that information to and that freedom to liberalise a bit versus who just needs a set regimen. Yeah. More often than not, the set regimen is the safer place to start. So you say that um, you tell them to come back with any questions or they're not sure, don't sit in the discomfort. Yes. What's your usual monitoring program for someone who yeah. you start on it like do you get them just to email you or because no I, can't I, see I generally every day <laughs> no I wish I generally get them back within the fortnight so right. a week okay. or two weeks later so they've um, got their structured plan and that will be okay for a week sure or we two t- weeks we touch yeah. Base. Yeah. yeah and certainly they can email me in the meantime um more often than not that's not required yeah right the invitations there it's also really important to educate on which foods and fluids do and don't need PERT, um, and more more importantly, that there's only very few that don't Yes, I was about to ask what other than water. Yeah. Water, black tea, black coffee, yeah. uh, soft drink, cordial juice, fruit, yeah. jelly, 
Ones without any macronutrients, yeah. basically. Yeah. <laughs> Anything that's either a pure carbohydrate or doesn't offer yeah. any protein or fat. Yeah. Um, one misconception, particularly in dietetics, is that um, the clear supplements, so things like resource fruit, beverage, yeah. resource, ultra clear, won't need a PERT. They do. We do still need the PERT for the protein to be yes. absorbed. Yeah. So that's still important. Um, but if you're having a latte or if you're having a couple of squares of chocolate, after dinner, you still need that pert. And if you're not taking the pert, there's no point eating the food. Mm, mm. And for these patients who are perhaps losing weight or lacking energy and they don't have an appetite, eating's not a, a particular joy at that time in their life. And so if they're going to the effort to eat, we want to make sure that they're absorbing the nutrients from yeah. it. Yeah. Um, is there, can you have too high a dose? Like you can. So the, there is a theoretical risk of too high a dose um, contributing to a condition called fibrosing colonopathy, which has been uh, case reported in cystic fibrosis patients, so not in um, no. pancreatitis or pancreatic cancer patients. So it is a theoretical risk, but the dose is really high. Right. Um, so I can give you information on, on that dose per kilogram of body weight, but essentially, yeah, you'd have to be taking, you know, 24 capsules a day, um, which is, you know, eight per meal, which if someone were needing that many capsules of PERT, that to me is alarm bells that something else is happening anyway. If that's that's not enough to be working, then... But symptomatically having a a dose that's more than probably necessary for that meal is not going to have any... Not at all a problem. Yeah, it's, it's a very low risk. Which I guess is reassuring for the Absolutely. patient. That when they're playing around, they're unlikely to do any harm other than not resolve their symptoms. Yeah, and if in doubt, take more rather than less. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. And then the other element to educate on, and perhaps this isn't for session one, it might be for those follow-up appointments, is around liberalising the diet to make sure that there's no ongoing fat or nutrient restriction Um and coaching people, counselling people around making sure they're eating enough variety but also feeling comfortable eating socially again. You know, they, they might have been avoiding going out for dinner for many months because of their symptoms and doing so in a way that feels really safe and comfortable is really important. And is the aim to be completely symptom-free? Like should these patients be um, having any fat malabsorption or any pain or anything like that at all? You should In be most aiming. cases, no. They won't be experiencing any ongoing symptoms. There might be some cases where you don't get full symptomatic relief but you get enough that it's yeah. allowing them to live a free life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does depend on the severity of their PEI. And we mentioned before about some of the biochemistry that you ask for for these um, clients. Mm. Are there... Other clinical tests or monitoring tools that you recommend for mm. these clients? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly we'd, we'd want to look at and monitoring anthropometry, <clears throat> and particularly if there was weight loss occurring, that's something that you'd want to monitor ongoing. You might look at doing a assessment of malnutrition using something like a PGSGA. Yeah. You might even look at a sarcopenia assessment so including some assessment of muscle mass or muscle strength and function. 
of course, you're looking at ongoing review of their diet, history, diet quality. You'd be monitoring their dose and timing, so making sure that they're taking that per as intended um, and make sure that they're aware to self-monitor. This is what I expect. If you take this in the correct way, this is what I expect of your symptoms. <clears throat> and you might... Um, it's important for us as dietitians to also be advocating for that baseline and regular biochem. So every six to 12 months, looking at those nutritional markers, but also a DEXA is encouraged oh, right. on diagnosis and two yearlies. Yep. Yeah, just to monitor that bone density. Um, but also, as I've alluded to, psychosocial well-being. So yeah. ensuring that there, there's you're mitigating any ongoing anxiety around food and eating socially yeah and with the with the liaison with the doctors uh mm. that we sort of touched on before what do you find are their sort of main common gaps in their knowledge because as you said they say yeah i'm happy to prescribe mm. um but then what do you find are their lapses in understanding around prescribing per yeah so most often the script will be <clears> take <throat> Pert, TDS before meals. And that's what will be written on the script and that's what will be picked up from the pharmacy. Um, so if a patient's eating five times a day and if Which three do you choose? <laughs> and they're all of their other medications before meals is half an hour before meals. Mm. So often a patient will come to me and they will be taking Pert 30 minutes before their meals three times a day. And so skipping their snacks and the crayons are actually working because no, they haven't eaten at the right late. time. So there's a lack of understanding on the, the timing and dosing to actual meals as opposed to TDS. It's funny, we as I mentioned before, AHOG, the Allied Health mm. Oncology Group, um, we had some nurses come recently from a uh, private hospital in Australia and they were saying, oh, but our doctors write the Pert up on the med chart, TDS before meals. Um, and there was just this huge lapse of even in a hospital setting, yeah. it's not prescribed appropriately and it's not giving it given a chance to do its job. Yeah, and you can imagine in a hospital setting, med round comes, yeah. you get your tablets, yeah. you take, take them. it now, never. Holly could come around depending <laughs> yeah. on where you are in the ward, um, yeah. what time it comes. Big, big timing difference. And, yeah, you know, lunch could be 12 mm. or 1. Depends what ward you're on. Yeah. Yeah. So tedious before meals is so common and it's just uh, not giving the patient a chance yeah. to work. Um, but often there'll be no education around how it works or how to adjust. There also might, might not be so much knowledge on the actual dosing. So um, hurt comes in multiple different sizes. Um, there's a 10,000 international unit, 25 35 there's also microspheres that can be scooped and dosed um so the 35s and the 25s are really useful for main meals <clears throat> the 10s are quite useful for you know your couple of squares of yeah. chocolate after dinner or your coffee, milky yeah. coffee mm. um and so for someone who is reluctant to take too much medication the 10,000s are really useful to have for those smaller snacks and fluids. So that's an important conversation and I often ask for multiple 
sizes in a script. Yeah, because I guess, yeah, the sta- the common default might be just one script, one dosage, um, mm-hmm. the 25 or the 35 or, yeah. or just the 10, I guess, which is not going to yeah, touch a main exactly meal. Right. So and what about, I was just sorry, I was just thinking, what about chemists, pharmacists? Mm. So what's their knowledge, do you find? Yeah, similar, this? not not okay. great. So they will follow and they will have to follow the advice yes, of the doctor. Right. So if it's written before meals, that's too vague for them to guide any further. Mm. You know, Maxillon or metoclopramide is often written 30 minutes prior, but before meals could be that or it could be just before. So, and it's not with, it's not often written with food. I actually think with food would be more. Yeah. Because before meals does usually imply fasting, basically. It does, doesn't it? it? Yeah. Yeah. And and in fact, PERT is better taken at the tail end of the meal as opposed Mm. to well before the meals started. Because your stomach can hold it for a bit, the yeah. food. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But the other element that's often not described is the that it needs to be taken with nearly essentially everything, including your latte, including mm. those random almonds that you have as your snack. If you're, having, yeah. if you're having six meals a day, then it's six times a day. And is uh, to, to educate... Um, the doctors or upskill other mm. healthcare professionals. Do you mainly do it for dietitians? Obviously, you have groups that you're working with, but dietitians mm. who might be working more in a sole sort of practice, yeah. is yeah. it just that constant communication, talking to them? And I imagine, a, as you say, a, a conversation is probably you know it's being received rather than a letter. Yeah. <laughs> you don't yeah. know if it's being actually received. Definitely. And look, PI is one of those cases where. GPs will rarely see it yes. as well, and and it, but that doesn't mean that they're not seeing it and just not picking up on it either. Mm. So I think see every conversation as an opportunity to connect and educate, but also establish a relationship with someone mm. who might then become a, a referrer for you as well. Yeah, uh, yeah so certainly, that. yeah, it's you know it's a two way street, but I think it's an underdiagnosed and undertreated issue in Australia, uh, in fact, worldwide. And so we're in a really good position to identify it and encourage its diagnosis and treatment. Yeah, and I think it is, it is a real opportunity for dietitians because we mm. are the ones that can see it and also can give that much more nuanced education about how to successfully use it because you yeah. can imagine that if the patient follows the TDS before meals, goes back to the doctor, says it's not working, and they go, oh, it's obviously not exocrine insufficiency yeah. then, and yeah. then it stops. That's right, they move yeah. on. And the other thing to know is that often there'll be a test that does come along with a suspected PEI, which is a faecal elastase test, <clears throat> um, which is a stool sample essentially. Oh, yep. But in order for faecal elastase to be a um an effective test and to be accurate, you can't have loose stools. Oh. So in most people with PEI, they've got diarrhea. Yeah. And so to do a faecal elastase test on someone with diarrhea is automatically inaccurate. Right. And so that, you know, a false negative test coupled with creon or PERT therapy that doesn't work, they cross it off their list. Yeah. Which is doubly frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> so dietitians out there, listen to this. Mm-hmm. Um, just another a sort of a minor, or not minor question, important question. But mm-hmm. uh, the enzymes in 
perked, as far as I'm aware, are pork derived. Mm. Are there any non-porcine options available in Australia? None that are effective, unfortunately. Um, so there are some over-the-counter plant-based enzymes that you can buy from health food shops. Mm-hmm. They're certainly not well-researched and they're not regulated for safety or efficacy. So some people can get some relief from them, but they do not work as effectively as PERT does. Um, so it is, yeah, a frustration, particularly if there is an allergy involved. Allergy, yeah. Yeah. In the case of a, a cultural pork avoidance that generally will be excused and requires just a bit of counselling and support around the importance of PERT yep. um, and generally that's well received and can be included. Yep. Yeah. So finally, Lauren, you've given us lots of information and anyone listening, you should go back to listen to last year's episode as well because it will just um, fill out the picture for you. But your sort of top three take-homes for dietitians listening about PERT and um, PEI? Yeah, for sure. I think first and foremost, keep it on your radar. So even if it's not an obvious case, I've had patients with IBS, um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, colorectal surgical patients, gastrectomy patients, those with pancreatitis, with presenting with pancreatic exocrine insufficiency. So keep it on your radar. They might not be an obvious candidate for it, but if they've got steatorrhea, do a trial of PERT. It's a very low-risk intervention. Second point would be pick up the phone. So write a letter as well, but this isn't the the place for snail mail, um, which may or may not be read. We want to take any opportunity to have a conversation with our medical colleagues about the appropriate prescription of PERT. And I think, thirdly, this is such a rewarding area of dietetics that we have the opportunity to advocate for a very simple change in a patient who's been really struggling physically, mentally, socially for extended periods of time, and we can quite literally change someone's life. And I think that's the the be aware point is a good one because someone might present like the reason they've come to you might be, as you say, IBS or something. But unless yeah. you question, they might have had a history of pancreatitis or 100%. some other thing that hasn't been part of the presenting reason. But yeah. if you question them, you go, "Oh, okay." Then there are more. There's more than one piece to this puzzle, mm. and and put it together. Yeah. Can add a fourth. Yep. Don't be afraid to get your patients to take photos of their stools, because a pale stool is you'll know you'll know what it looks like as a dietitian, but they won't necessarily mm. know because it could be absolutely their normal. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a lovely note to finish on, Lauren. <laughs> <Isn't it divine? laughs> Sorry for that mental note, everyone. <laughs> yeah, we're all visualising it already. <laughs> Apologies to anyone who may be eating at the same time yeah. listening to this podcast. A lovely lunchtime broadcast. <laughs> um, look, that, that was really interesting, Lauren. Thank you so much for your time again today. Um, it's, it is such a fascinating area and, as you say, something that a relatively easy intervention can be so life-changing. Um, so anyone who's is working in a practice, just keep it in the back of your mind that it, it might be something that you need to consider. Um, and we'd really also like to thank Beatrice for supporting today's podcast episode. So thanks, Lauren. Thanks. Good to talk to you as always. Thanks so much, Jane. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, 
you can go to dietitianconnection.com slash podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.